Welcome to Hustle Up's The Big Break, where we talk to showrunners, directors, executives, and other talented people working in the entertainment industry about how they got their start and what they've done to fast forward their creative careers. I'm H. Schuster, the founder and CEO of Hustle Up, and today I'm breaking it down with accomplished screenwriter, director, and producer Zach Penn, known for his work on a long list of amazing movies, including Ready Player One, X-Men 2, X-Men The Last Stand, Elektra, The Incredible Hulk, and The Avengers. Join us for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Zach Penn is an accomplished screenwriter, director, and producer who began his career when he sold his first script, Last Action Hero, at the age of 23. Since then, Zach's become known for his work on numerous Marvel films, including X-Men 2, X-Men The Last Stand, Elektra, The Incredible Hulk, and The Avengers. Recently, Zach adapted the New York Times best-selling novel Ready Player One for a Warner Brothers film directed by Steven Spielberg, and he co-wrote the script for the action comedy Free Guy, starring Ryan Reynolds and directed by Sean Levy. Zach's shift into independent cinema began when he collaborated with his idol, Werner Herzog, on a script for Rescue Dawn. Zach directed and co-starred with Herzog in Incident at Loch Ness, his award-winning hoax documentary. The Grand, Zach's second completely improvised film, also featured Herzog and an eclectic cast including Woody Harrelson, David Cross, Ray Romano, Cheryl Hines, and Dennis Farina. Zach's first foray into television was the critically acclaimed original series Alphas starring David Strathairn, and he also directed one of my favorite documentary features, Atari Game Over, for Xbox Entertainment Studios, where he literally excavated buried E.T. game cartridges. Zach's also been active in the WGA, including serving on the negotiating committee during the 2017 contract talks. I'm excited to talk about all the cool stuff you've written and also the state of our industry. Uh, welcome, Zach Penn. Thank you so much for breaking it down with us today. Uh, thank you so much for that round of applause, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's awesome. I've known you for a long time, and you are a talented and prolific screenwriter, um, having done a lot of superhero and big franchise films. And, you know, I wanted to kind of start out by talking about um, tent poles and kind of the state of the industry. Major studios obviously rely on tent poles now, um, but you've also made some, some great independent films. Where do you think the, the movie business is heading, especially in the wake of the quarantine? Wow. Uh, well, I think even before the quarantine, uh, the studios and, and you know, the film industry in general was heading kind of dangerously towards exclusively enormous franchise films, which, you know, I'll take some blame for. Uh, the intention was never for that to be all the films that were getting released. Uh, and I think that trend was probably exacerbated by uh, the pandemic because you ended up with, you know, studios having these really spare release schedules other than their tentpole franchises. Um, I do think that the movie business is coming back, and I don't think it's sustainable without other types of films in the ecosystem. I mean, I, I don't see yeah. how we could shift to a scenario where the only movies that come out are tentpole movies, because how will the theater survive that way? Um, so, but it is a weird time. I mean, let's be honest. It's a very, it's very hard to predict what the future is going to bring at this point. 
Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, I look at like the recent success of a, a small film, or a relatively small film like 80 for Brady, right, which had uh, octogenarian, uh, very well-known, but octogenarian actresses as the leads. And it gives me hope, but a lot of these films are being produced by the streamers, right, who then take a very quick second window or they launch them on the streaming service. I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts are on on theatrical, right, on what's going to happen to, to movie theaters, or, or does a lot of it become, you know, streamed in our homes? Well, I, I think once you're streaming something in your home, you know, once the business model is that we're only going to perfunctory, you know, it's only going to be a perfunctory release in theaters and then show in your homes, you're not talking about the theatrical business anymore. I mean, even if you do what is the equivalent of a four wall, like they did, um, you know, the expression meaning like it's the equivalent of almost renting out a theater is called four walling. Uh, When you look at like the release of, you know, um, the Knives Out sequel, for example, you know, it's just Netflix putting it out for a week or two, or I don't know how long, but but it's not, it's not designed to help the theatrical business at all. So uh, I, I think, you know, the only model that works is something where you're making movies for a theatrical release, because if you don't, the theaters will die, and then you'll have no theatrical release at all. Uh, there's plenty of movies, like, you know, there's a bunch of horror movies that have done extremely well, you know, Smile or Megan or whatever, which are non-tentpole, but but completely viable cocaine bear, you know, uh, completely viable releases. I mean, Free Guy got a lot of credit, and I think deservedly so, for being an original movie, which it was. It's based on a spec by Matt Lieberman. Um, I don't understand. I mean, I won't pretend to know what, you know, lurks in the hearts of the people running these businesses, but, (laughs) but... I don't really see, there's an obvious value if you look at something like Avatar, right? The idea that you can release an original movie that everyone's skeptical about, I, I know it's a sequel, but still, it's not, sure, this, yeah. it's not a baked-in franchise that every, you know, people criticize saying, who's talking about Avatar anymore? And then Avatar 2 comes out and, wants, you know, makes over $2 billion. Right. So much less for all the Marvel movies and the DC movies and all the other franchises that clearly work, uh, you need a robust theatrical business to support that. And beyond that, one of the things that's clearly been you know shown over and over again is that the value of a movie that comes out in theaters worldwide and makes a cultural impression is so much more tangible than the value of a movie that's made for a streamer, you know, other than the most extreme examples that, you know, shows and then people catch it whenever they do and it doesn't really, it doesn't have value behind the initial value of its release. Whereas if you look at movies that are in a library that people love, they still drive viewership as evidence. You know, you look at a top 10 list from any individual streamer and often there'll be some movie that came out years ago that's suddenly on the charts. So, when Harry Met Sally is still there, right? Yes. Oh, why are these famous movies that everybody loves doing right. so well on streaming? It's not. It doesn't take rocket science to see that it's the re, the way those things were created and released is what gives them their enhanced value. So, is Hollywood yeah. going to stop doing that? Are we going to basically say 
well, we, we'll stop, you know, trying to create movies that really have that kind of global footprint and just hope that somehow we'll keep the audience watching. That, to me, seems like a crazy plan that I assume nobody's actually falling through on. I hope. Right. Or, or at least unless they're the villain in the next Bond movie, right? Um, yeah. Let's talk, about, let's talk about a couple of the movies, that, that a couple, two, three of the movies that you've made. You recently worked with Steven Spielberg on Ready Player One. Uh, what was it like to work with him? What, what's his process like? Uh, it was, uh, you know, I'm, it's so hard not to give a jokey response. I mean, the truth is, it was, <laughs> you know, it sucked. I mean, I, I had to teach him what to do. Uh, no, it was amazing. I mean, it was amazing. It was kind of what... You know, I came to Hollywood hoping to get to work for and with Steven Spielberg. And, you know, early in my career, I was lucky enough um, when DreamWorks first started, I had a deal with them. Um, and so I worked on some of their, the you know, the kind of last Amblin movies, first DreamWorks movies. But I never really got to work directly with Steven. Uh, you know, certainly not with him as a director. He was the producer on those. Uh Working with him as director is kind of like, you know, it's like going, I jokingly called everyone, it was the dream team, you know, because right. you've got this group of people who are all the top of their field in every department. And, and honestly, one of the things that was actually very intimidating was they're all constantly getting nominated for Oscars, too. So every, you know, I worked yeah. on that movie for a couple of years, and every year everyone was like, oh, are you going on Sunday? And no, I wasn't nominated for an Oscar, <laughs> like the rest of you. Um, Me either. I yeah, mean, <laughs> I know. And they're like, "Well, maybe next year." I'm like, "Well, no, not until this movie." You know, like I just thought the way it works as a writer. Uh, but what was amazing was he, you know, more than anyone I've ever worked with, he basically said right up front, "I want you to be involved in every aspect. I want you to come to every pre-production meeting. I want you to go to every effects meeting." Uh, I want you to be there the whole time. I want you and you come to England when we're shooting it and be on set every day. And I was like, okay, if you insist. Um, you know, I was just, to me, that was this un unbelievable opportunity. And I, I couldn't, you know, I told him I would have done this. I would have done that for free. I mean, if I wasn't right. writing Ready Player One, he said, do you want to shadow me for three years? I would have said yes. So, uh, you know, every day... I watched him do something amazing and had the opportunity to say, okay, so why did you do that? Why did you, you know, I just heard you say lower the camera by, you know, 10 degrees and change the lens and can you explain it to me? And he'd say, yeah, actually, I guess I can, you know, and I was really the only one in Video Village. It was me and a couple of other people at most. So it was just like this incredible, you know, it was kind of like imagine following Michael, um, Imagine following like Michael Jordan around on a basketball court where you could literally just try to keep up with him running behind and everyone was like got out of your way and got to ask him, well, why are you going right instead of left? And he explained it to you. That's kind of what it was like. So uh, it was pretty thrilling. Like I, I think I stopped complaining for three years because <laughs> I would wake up every day. That's a, that's a statement. I it mean, is that's, a a, huge, that's, a, that's a big deal. That's yes, a big deal. As you well know, I'm, that it goes against my very nature. But I'm really curious. I mean, you've obviously done a, a lot of big blockbuster movies, uh, Marvel movies. Um, you're a comic book guy. I think you even, you even published your own comic book, right? Um, mm -hmm. What's 
what's your favorite Marvel comic that hasn't yet been made into a film? Or, or any comic, really. Is there a comic book out there that you're like, this would be the one I'd want to write next? Maybe you're already working on it. I don't know. No. Um, I mean, first of all, I think I've thought, I, I kind of got to a point where I felt like I had written enough uh, comic book movies. I mean, first of all, <laughs> let's, let's define our terms. Movies based on comic books, I mean, comic books can be any genre. It's kind of like saying, That's right. uh, you know, this is early in my career. I used to, people are like, oh, you know, uh, not early in my career, but when Marvel was first ramping up, people would be like, you know, how many movies can they make based on comic books? And I'm like, you don't say that about novels. You don't say how many right. movies can there be based on novels. Um, yeah. So, you know, when you look at some of the comic books that have been adapted from 300 to Road to Perdition, you know, uh, Road to Perdition to... Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, I mean, there's all these movies that are not yeah. what what I know you mean by comic book movies, which I would, I think most of the time when people complain about the glut of comic book movies, that what they mean is a, a glut of superhero movies. And, yeah, uh, it's an interesting distinction, right? Because I think they do get sort of, uh, uh, you know, lumped into one, one thing, right? And I think even beyond that, the sort of way people now call it genre, right? The genre of genre, whatever that is, right? And, and there's a lot of things like the boys and other things that get lumped in under this broader umbrella too, I guess, right? Right. Well, and the boys is legitimately a superhero. It's just a, it's a revisionist superhero movie. I mean... An, an anti-superhero, yeah. Yeah, like one of the reasons why it's funny, you know, I used to say up until Avengers, I had never written a superhero movie because I purposely leaned towards the titles like, you know, the X-Men, which is far more of a science fiction concept than it is a super... Right. You know, if you define superhero as somebody who pulls on tights to fight crime, right? Like the traditional right. superhero being, you know, Batman, Superman, uh, Spider-Man, uh, you know, there's... I, I could go on and on, Captain America... Um, you know, the X-Men is much more of a sci-fi concept about a group yeah. of people who are discriminated against with unusual powers who are mostly fighting for their own survival, not to... Right. And by the way, that's not to say that there aren't X-Men comic books that are about them fighting crime, but mostly it, it plays more like classic sci-fi, which really is what, even though I grew up loving comics, I'm also, as a movie fan, I grew up loving sci-fi, I mean, Spielberg, right. and then later Cameron, and obviously George Lucas, and all sorts of other Ridley Scott, um, you know, that's really what got me excited about movies. I mean, seeing Close Encounters, you know, that's yeah. what's up on my wall, is close, a poster from Close Encounters. Um, yeah. So, uh, but now that was a really long-winded preamble. I mean, I think Now Mar we're really waiting for the answer. Now we really want to know. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm trying to think. In no the pressure. Okay, well, in the Marvel canon, there's not much left that I really yeah. love that hasn't been done. Uh, you know, I, I'm actually straining to think, you know, for example, I, I, Rom, there's a comic called Rom that was based on a Hasbro toy that me and Kevin Feige used to talk about being such an excellent uh, opportunity for adaptation. And I wrote, I wrote a script on ROM a number of years ago. So even though it never got made, you know, that's already out there. So, I, so there's, there's not a lot of superhero stories left that, that I would be all that, much, all that excited to do, you know? Um, that's interesting. 
I mean, there's I'm ones curious, like... I'm you know, screenwriters... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. No, I was just going to say, like, for example, I adapted this comic, Concrete, which is a, a beautiful and wonderful comic that won all sorts of awards in the 80s, um, you know, which is very unusual. Uh, and there's, you know, there's ones that I, like, this comic Saga by Brian Vaughn, who's a fantastic writer, uh, who I don't think wants yeah. to have it adapted. You know, there's plenty of comic books I've read over the years that I would love to see film adaptations of because I think the forms complement each other. You know, sequential yeah. art is the best thing to adapt into a movie. But uh, I, I don't have a... I, I no longer have a Jones for, you know, yeah. like, finally I get to do Moon Knight or something, you know. Um, <laughs> well, this is interesting because screenwriters obviously um, have to bring their pitch, uh, their, their, their take on a project, right, especially when it's pre-existing IP. Um, what's, what's kind of the craziest take on something you've ever pitched? Wow. Um, Probably the craziest take is that I was brought at one point um, the rights to an entire catalog, um, which I probably shouldn't say, but uh, it's something that if you dug, you know, very shallowly through my past, you'd find. Uh, <laughs> and I said, you know, my response was, I don't want to adapt all of these titles into one universe, but I do want to make a show about the meeting that we're having right now, which is <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make a show about someone who is trying to adapt this sprawling universe of titles that aren't necessarily suited to adaptation. And I, I had kind of a crazy idea to do, to take one of those titles and have that, that story actually happening while this at a, at a fictional streamer they were trying to adapt the rest of them and there would be a star of one of the shows gets embroiled in like the real life story. I mean, I, this is, I can't really pitch it, but it was, it was kind of the most meta possible. It was kind of a weird mix of incident at Loch Ness and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, ready player one or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sort of a, a, a breaking of the fourth wall and, and mixing, what's happening in the story and what's happening around it. Yeah. And, uh, but I don't think other than that, you know, most of the time, like most of the comic book movies adaptations I worked on, you know, certainly when I was working for Marvel, I mean, first for Fox and then for Marvel, it was more like, all right, what's next? What are we, you know, it was like, right. okay, Zach, you need to write this. But then right after that, we need you to write that. So it wasn't like, right. there wasn't even the, what's your pitch, what's your take? It was, let's all agree on what we're going to do now. So, Well, and so, you know, in addition to the big studio films that you've done, you've also written and directed several independent features, right? And mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what motivated you to want to do that while you were also writing these big, big pictures for, for Marvel and so forth. And, and what do you love about that that's sort of different from writing a big, big blockbuster? Well, Maybe I'll take, first I'll say what I, you know, for, when you're working as a screenwriter on, on a big blockbuster movie, particularly something that's based on IP and that's, you know, $150, $200 million budget, you know, you don't have a lot of control over the process, obviously. And, yeah. you know, occasionally you luck into a situation like Ready Player One where you're working with someone who has total control over the process. 
But for the most part, if which you, is rare, that's really rare. Extremely these days, rare. Right? Yeah, mean, it's like James yeah. Cameron and Steven Spielberg, and you know, that's about it. Uh, but I think for me, I was coming off. I had written a spec script that I was trying to direct, that had gotten put together and fell apart, and it was very frustrating. My dealings with some of the executives involved and. You know, I just, I was kind of at the end of my rope in terms of, on the one hand, I was writing these big movies, you know, which were always pretty contentious, and there's a lot of arguments about whether they were, I mean, back then in the early aughts, you know, constantly arguing about whether it was even viable to do another comic book movie, which I thought was right. insane. So I just, I felt like, well, I've got to, like, do something that's mine. And that's what led to Incident at Loch Ness. It was a very spur-of-the-moment thing where I just was hanging out with Werner Herzog. You know, I had taken this job just because I was trying to do something. Yeah, and basically someone called me and said, would you help Werner Herzog with this script? And I said, yes. I don't care what the terms are or anything else. The answer is yes. So then I kind of came up with this idea, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to go do this. So I put up the seed money myself. And then I went out and got investors to help my friend Thomas Augsburger. And, uh, you know, we just went and did it. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Christopher Guest movies. I mean, This is Spinal yeah. Tap was like a movie that really, you know, uh, that's in my top ten of all time. So the I just... The goes to 11. Yep. And, and I just was like, I gotta, I have to go do something that's my own, and the only way to do that is to work on a much, much smaller scale. I mean, the budget of the movies I was working, the independent movies I was working on, were, were literally less than the catering budget of the movies I was writing. <laughs> so, um, uh, and that was it. It was just like to have control, to you know, to have yeah. final cut. To so you know, worked, you worked with Werner on on two of your own projects, right? Loch Ness and and then the Grand, and you worked with him on another project as well. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, and I, I met him at your home, like sitting in your living room when when you were <laughs> when you were shooting Loch Ness, um, which my wife found out about yesterday when I was getting ready for this, and she was like, "Wait, you've met Werner Herzog?" I was like. Please, I've hung out with Werner Herzog. Uh, I'm curious, like, what's your best Werner story? Like, g give us a oh crazy story about him, uh, or, or three. Holy, I mean, look, uh, that's like, uh, you know, all Werner is. He is just a collection of incredible stories. I mean, constant. Yeah. And they follow him everywhere, and he finds them everywhere. Um, you know, look, the best Werner Herzog story I have is definitely, so we were doing a screening, they were doing like a, so Werner, as backstory, was making Grizzly Man while we were in post on Incident at Loch Ness. He had been talking about it, he was going through the footage, so I knew about that. So a couple of years later, after both had come out, and Grizzly Man was a huge success for him, uh, the new Beverly did back-to-back uh, -back screening, a double feature of Incident and, Gri and Grizzly Man. And so Werner and I were asked to do a Q&A, which we were happy to do. And I call up Werner and ask him, like, are you ready for this thing on Saturday? And he said, yes, well, I, I should say that I've been shot. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he proceeds to tell me this story that he was doing an interview at the BBC in the Hollywood Hills 
and he got shot in the stomach by someone uh, random that, uh, that they, he, they didn't know who did it. And you can see it online, uh, and actually he said it's online. I found it. You know, I went and looked it up, and uh, sure enough, he's giving an interview, and he gets he gets shot by like it turned out to must have been extremely low caliber or like an, some sort of you know BB wow. rifle. I don't know what it was, but it hits him, and it you know it causes this wound, but it doesn't penetrate the flesh, as he says. And he's like, let's just finish the interview, and they do. And so I, I hear that story. I'm like, okay, are you sure? I, it's going to get crazier, by the way. And I'm like, you sure you're okay? And he says, yeah, I'm fine. It's okay. We'll do it. Then the next day, I opened the, like, I think I was still reading the paper back then. I opened the paper or wherever. I see it online. There's a story that Joaquin Phoenix has been in a car accident and claims he was rescued by Werner Herzog from the car accident. And so I call Werner back up and I'm like, Werner, what's, is this true? And he says, yes, I, who, I didn't know who this man was. I pulled over and yeah, his car had flipped over. You know, and he just tells the story that he had, like, happened to be driving <laughs> home and Joaquin Phoenix's car flipped over and he was smoking a cigarette and Werner was like, oh, he could die. I'll, I'll pull him out of the car wreck. And he waited for the ambulance and they just got in his car and left. And Joaquin Phoenix didn't even realize it till a day later that that's who had done it. And so when we did the Q&A that weekend, everybody was buzzing because both these stories were kind of, you know, and I, I think one of the stories wasn't public yet. And I just said, well, you know, you're basically, this is like a Q&A with Batman. Because what Werner did this week <laughs> is get shot in the stomach and finish his interview and then pull Joaquin Phoenix out of a car that crashed. And I basically sat on my ass and played video games all week, so... Um, that's that, amazing. He's shot in the stomach and then rescues Joaquin Phoenix and, and, and the future of, of, uh, of film as we know uh, it, obviously, yeah. because, you know, Joaquin is a, a talented fellow. Um, so you, you directed, obviously, Incident Loch Ness and The Grand, and, and I'm curious what it was like to direct. Did you enjoy directing? Was it hard to figure out? Was it, was it something that you were like, I love this and I want to do more of it? Or were you like, I can't wait to get back to my computer? Um, well, it's a little of all those things. Certainly, you know, one of the things is with Incident Loch Ness, I, first of all, the movie is completely improvised. So I have, I had an outline, but every scene was improvised on the day. So, you know, sometimes I had specific lines for people and sometimes I had actors or friends who were coming in who knew what they were going to be doing in the movie, but I didn't really think about how hard it was going to be to direct and supervise the improv, which is the key to it. Like when you're allowing people to improvise, you have to keep, you know, things moving in the right direction and also play a horrible version of myself. So Incident Loch Ness was like stupidly high degree of difficulty that I set out for myself. Um, I had a tremendous amount of fun making it. Uh, it was really hard. I mean, I was exhausted. There are many times I called Mish, my wife, on the phone and said, oh, my God, I, I can't even move because we were also shooting on water. <laughs> I was shooting on water, yeah. so I had, uh, you know, the reverse of seasickness where when you come off a boat, you feel sick when you're on land. It feels like everything's right. moving. So uh, I definitely, I was like, well, I don't know when I'm going to do that again. But then as soon as, like, the PTSD from that disappeared, I said, well, I want to do another. <laughs> I did it again, and that was also hard, but that time I didn't act in it for the grand. 
So that was a lot. And you had a great cast for that movie, right? You had Woody Harrelson and Ray Romano, Cheryl Hines. How did you put the cast together for the grant? How did you get all those folks to say yes? uh, You know, it it was crazy. I mean, we had 24, you know, name actors in that movie. Um, And just, you know, I mean, David Cross and Chris Parnell. And, you know, it's just insane. Uh, You know, it took a lot of work. I mean, we just basically... You know, it actually, it originally started with Ben Affleck, who's a big poker player and someone I had known for a long time. Uh, but then, you know, we you guys just started... played basketball together, right? Weren't you, weren't you in a uh, basketball group? With... I was, I was, he played, we played in the same pickup game. He actually got injured. Yeah. Um, and I, so, but, uh, yeah, did, you, had... did you rescue him after you had been shot in the stomach when he was injured? Uh, no, I did not. Although Ben, <laughs> Ben and I have a good, you know, Ben, he sometimes forgets this. I mean, I run into him periodically that he really did something. I, I can't go into the details, but there was a project that I wrote that Ben really did something incredibly menschy on my behalf that I, I always tell him, like, if you ever need me, just call because I owe you one. Um, what I did for him was he sprained his ankle really badly, and I sent him to my uh, doctor who was like an expert on fixing sprained ankles, which, you know, if you play basketball, it's just part comes with the territory. Um, yeah. but, uh, so, uh, you know, with the grand, it was just, I had a lot of help, you know, uh, Endeavor, uh, uh, helped a lot putting everything together back then in 2005. And, you know, certain people were just excited by the prospect of getting to improvise, you know, um, yeah. some of the people were friends of mine, Richard Kind was a friend of mine who I played poker yeah. with. A number of the people were in the Hollywood poker community. So they weren't, you know, yeah. it was Hank Azaria, someone I had played poker with a lot. But sometimes it was just, you know, people loved the opportunity of getting to improvise and, and do something different. And I gave people a lot of leeway to create their own characters. So, yeah, you know, it's one... Would you, would you do another one? Would you do another, oh, another improvised feature? I'd love to. I mean, and I'd love to do it as a series. You know, I'd love to, like... Michael McKean, by the way, who I've, uh, you know, um, was one of the greatest people to work with. I mean, yeah. just like an incredible improvisational actor. Um, I would, I would love to, and it's actually, you know, it's something I keep swearing I'm going to do again. It's just, it's not easy to put together. You know, you really, yeah. particularly when you're talking about something that's truly improvised, people have to sign off based on an outline, you know, and yeah. that's not, it's not easy to get financial commitments from people when you're saying there's no script for you to read. So uh, it's a lot, I think, with series, you know, when you see something like Curb Your Enthusiasm or whatever, where uh, that's probably a more viable venue for something like that now. But, um, But yeah, I'd love to do it again. And I try to bring some of that spirit to whatever I'm doing. Obviously, it's hard to do on something like Ready Player One, Although Spielberg allows a certain amount of improv too, which I'm, I mean, we're very simpatico on that. Like trying to make the dialogue feel real rather than scripted. Uh, But yeah, I mean. Well, and uh, you've done, you've done episodic as well, right? I mean, this is a good moment to talk about that. Like, you know, you've done alphas and I believe uh, 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 beacon. Yeah. beacon, Beacon 23. Beacon 23. Um, and, and I'm curious, like, you know, uh, do you enjoy doing multi-part like is episodic fun for you? Cause the story can go further and the characters can go further or are, are you, 
really into the the sort of feature structure? No, I, in theory, I'd love to do, I'd love to do another series. Um, I found quite a bit. A lot of cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, a lot of cooks and a lot of, I mean, you know, if I can find myself in the right circumstance, I definitely want to do it. I mean, there's a couple of things that I'm working on now, you know, one in particular that would be a series where I would feel properly insulated. You know, like one of the things is with the grand, for example, even though I had investors, I had a lot of control over the process and a lot of control. Yeah. I, I didn't, I wasn't getting notes from people about, I, I certainly didn't have anyone looking over my shoulder at the footage saying, you know, could we get, you know, could Werner do more of this and could you get Woody Harrelson to, you know, wear a different hat or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. And best, best note I ever got from a network was in post, in post-production. Everything was shot, done. Uh, the, the exec had been on set. Uh, and in post-production, I got a note from her saying, I don't like the color of this, this cast member's shirt. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay. And she was like, well, what are we going to do about it? I was like, well, if you want to give me a rotoscope budget, I can go in and turn it purple for you. Like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. And what's, what's the craziest note you've ever gotten? That's a, that's a question. Oh that, my God. That I think we all have a good answer to what's the, what on any project, what's the craziest note you've ever gotten? I mean, I, I could literally write a book, my own book of, you know, like a Martian, yeah. you know, a Martian wouldn't say that that's the book about yep. all the crazy notes. I mean, I, I think Mish would attest to this because she has to listen to me recount all of them <laughs> that I probably have dealt with as many as anyone. Um, one of the craziest ones I got, I did get a great shirt note on Alphas uh, about a character. They didn't like the color of the shirt. And I, when I got to set, they had not let us, they, we weren't shooting. And I was like, what's going on? Why haven't we started? And they said, well, they don't, they want to change the shirt. And I'm like, first of all, this character is wearing a hoodie over her shirt. Second of all, this character had locked in syndrome. So she couldn't, which means she couldn't move or speak. Um, she was completely immobile and was a hostage who was tied up in a basement. And I was like, okay, so we're arguing about a t-shirt of a character who you want a brighter, <laughs> a more cheap. I was like, here's the thing. I don't care what t-shirt you put on her. She can wear any t-shirt your heart desires. But like, it was really, and, and I feel like it was one of those typical things where it was clearly a bureaucratic thing. It wasn't the executive's fault. Someone upstairs had said, I don't like the look of this shirt and had no context for it. And I was just like, I wish the cameras were on because this, is the most absurd discussion I've ever had. Um, uh, and by the way, is wasting the studio's money because now they've stopped down and they're not shooting. Totally. I mean, it was crazy. I was just like, how about you name the shirt, she's wearing it because you're not going to see it. So whatever shirt you have in your mind, that's what she's wearing. Um, uh, that, was about, that was a crazy one. But um, certainly one of, the, one of my favorite moments, it, one of my favorite notes I ever got was while making Atari Game Over. Um, and I don't know who it came from, but so an Atari game over while I was making that, you know, Ernie Klein, who is the author of Ready Player One, was featured yeah. heavily in the documentary because that's right, he, because of his fandom and because of his interests. And he wanted to go to the, the dig and everything else. 
And at one point when they saw the cut, someone sent the note that first of all said, why isn't there more footage of Ernie Klein? Why didn't you, why don't you get him doing this, this, and this? Which first of all, it's a documentary. So the answer as to why we didn't get him doing those things is because time is not fluid. I can't go back right. in time and make something happen. But the best note was, um, you might not be aware of this, but Ernie Klein book, uh, Ready Player One, recently sold to Warner Brothers for a million dollars and is currently being adapted into a feature motion picture. Could you include something about that? And the thing was, I had already been hired as the screenwriter of Ready Player <laughs> One. So it was like that scene from Annie Hall where, you know, he says, I have Marshall McLuhan right here. And, he'll, and yeah. I was so tempted to say, that's a great idea. I think I can get us an interview with the screenwriter of Ready Player One to talk about all about it. And I was seriously considering interviewing myself, you know, asking for a little (laughs) bit of extra money and then going to interview myself. But but there was such anger behind it, too. It was like this crazy thing that I hadn't gotten. That's why I almost thought I was being punked. I was like, do they know I'm writing Ready Player One and they're making fun of me? But no, they didn't. They just thought, like, you know... We Google this, and uh, why aren't you doing something about it? Right. And, we Googled uh, who he is, and now we know. You're right. And um, so, all right. Well, look, I, I have to ask you this. I have to ask you this because you know it's the name of our show. Um, your big break moment was Last Action Hero, which you sold when you graduated college at Wesleyan. Uh, take us back in time and tell us the story, the story of, of, of writing it, of coming up with it, and, and of how you actually got that sold and, and made with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. Um, so my writing partner at the time, Adam Leff, and I, when we graduated, we, we wrote a script in seven days right after graduation uh, about a giant rat in Central Park, and we sent it around, and people said, this is not a good idea to send around as your first <laughs> script. And we went back to the drawing board and wrote another script, and, and with that one, we were more careful we we read it, people said they liked it, but we thought this is not good enough. Like, you know, one thing that I had a pretty acute sense of is you don't get that many shots with people, you know, and when you need help and when you're nobody in the business, like you better make sure you're you're putting your best foot forward. And I had had this idea since right after we graduated, I'd come up with the idea for Last Action Hero. Um, you know, which I, you know, I, I started by saying it's um, it's like a reverse Purple Rose of Cairo, um, right. you know, which is again Woody Allen movie. Um, uh, and and you, they, were, you knew you wanted to be a writer at a pretty young age, right? Yeah, you, you yes. sort of zeroed in on that. I started writing my I wrote my class play when I was in fourth grade, which was a horrible miscalculation on my teacher's part, but uh, and then in fifth grade too. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and I wrote, you know, I, I had been writing plays and writing short stories since I was very young and I wrote someone's student film when I was at Wesleyan and, and acted in it and I was a theater major. So, you know, I really, you know, I had done my 10,000 hours of preparation by the time I got to Hollywood. So I had this idea, you know, People thought it was a terrible, a couple of people we talked to, I said, yeah, it's a movie about a kid who gets sucked into an action movie. And there's a lot of people who said that's a really bad idea. 
uh, because Hollywood doesn't like movies about movies and, you know, it's mixed genres and whatever. Insider baseball and, yeah. Right, and also not easy to quantify. And I was just like, look, I'm just trying to write something I want to see, and number right. one. And number two, I know me and Adam can do a good job writing this. I just know this will be a, a good sample. It'll be funny and exciting and it'll be a good read. And, you know, my instinct on that was right, and we wrote it. And we sent it to the same people who told us not to send out our giant rat script. And most of them said, this is good. This is going to sell. This is a, and who, who were those people? Who were you putting it in the hands of? Mostly assistants, uh, assistants to agents, assistants to producers. We had one friend who we thought was really powerful because she was a story editor at a company. Um, we, I don't think we knew anyone we knew one agent, um, you know, but it was 99 And these were, these were all people that you, you knew through Wesleyan and through, like, people who had gone through Wesleyan? How did you kind no. of build this network of assistance? Because I think that's something that is so hard for people coming into this business, right? Like, it hasn't changed since you and I came to Hollywood. It's still the same. How do you get your stuff in someone's hands? How do you build that network of people? I'm curious how you found those folks. Well, okay, so some of the people were... There were some through Wesleyan, but not as many as you might think. Um, in fact, uh, I would argue that, you know, Adam and I w were more, uh, we ended up connecting a lot more Wesleyan people to each other. Once, once we sold our first script, I started having a lot of parties and introducing. So you're you know, responsible for the Wesleyan mafia in no, Hollywood. That no, was no, no, no. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. You're the godfather. No, there, there are waves. There are waves of Wesleyan people, but what I would say is, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. you know, just as a sidebar, you know, Mike White was at Wesleyan, and he was someone who I was a TA for in a playwriting class. And the yeah. first scene he wrote, I was like, "You're the, you're an amazing playwright." I, I think I said yeah. to him my senior year, "Mike, I'm going to go to Hollywood. When I sell, as soon as I get my foot in the door, I'm going to call you and and get you to come back, you know, come to Hollywood." because you're such a great writer awesome. and that literally is exactly what happened, but that's a different story. But I also, you know, Mike was, even when we were writing together, he was my writing partner for a couple of years. He would write, he'd come in and be like, Oh, I wrote this script over the weekend. Tell me what you think of it. And it was, you know, Chuck and Buck. And I was like, you wrote yeah. this over. I mean, I might be exaggerating, but it was never more than I mean, Mike would write a script in a, in a week easily. And it was yeah. always fully formed. And I knew my friend Miguel Arteta was two years older than me at Wesleyan, so he and Mike didn't know each other, but I ended up, you know, Miguel was looking for a script. I was like, you should talk to Mike. He, like, turns out a great script every three weeks, you know? So, and that turned yeah. into, you know, The Good Girl was another Star one you ran around right? that time. Yeah. Well, Star Maps was Miguel's movie that he then asked me and Mike to be in, uh, and we rewrote right. our, right. it's a movie people always say, oh, I didn't know you were in that. Who do you play? And I'm like, I play Zach, the writer. And they're like, I remember Mike White. I'm like, I, Mike, and I, we play the writing partner, Zach and Mike, but I guess you don't remember. Anyway, uh, I'm going off on a tangent. So, so basically, I would say this network came as much from, first of all, growing up in New York City was like yeah. a, a tremendous advantage. I mean, just to be fair, right, if we're being honest yeah. about advantages I had, Growing up in New York City was a huge advantage because there's so many New York transplants out in L.A. Yeah. But it was also just 
knowing all these people and a group of us from Wesleyan moved out and meeting other people, but it was mostly every time I met someone through a friend, you know, like, you know, just inadvertently networking at parties and other places, you know, once you know five people, you're going to know 50 people. So we were just, between Adam and I, we were just collecting people who were working in various parts of the industry uh, as, you know, just, and and also being open and helping other people with their stuff too. You know, people would ask us for advice. So it, it wasn't as, it wasn't like, oh, I want to be a writer on The Simpsons, so I'm going to go to Harvard and work at the Harvard Lampoon, you know, which was a totally, that was like a thing. You know, that was something you did. This was more ad hoc. But so when we finished Last Action Hero and we had enough people who knew what they were talking about confirming our own belief, which was that we had written something at a chance of getting us represented, we then got, we kind of did a little bit of our own hustle, if you will, which was we coordinated with a group of friends and had them call. So we submitted it to one agent through an assistant at, you know, fill in the blank agency and to another agency through another assistant. And then we would time it. This was before cell phones or anything. We basically told them, okay, the script's on his desk. Can you call or go into his office and tell him that you just heard that UTA also has the script? And we were doing the same thing at UTA and the same thing at CAA. And it worked. You know, it really worked in that. And, and, you know, we got a little bit of flack for it when the story came out. People were kind of annoyed, I think, at me because it seemed like a, you know, to them it seemed like, wow, that's really aggressive and whatever. And I was just like, uh, you know, call it what you want. I know what I want to do and where I'm going. And this is whatever work, you know. But I was certainly prepared to agent the agents. And to his credit... Well, our- it's interesting, right? Because it's so much harder to do now because of cell phones and Twitter and, and the way people can talk to each other instantly, right? You had the advantage of 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 communication being a much slower process, right? Pick up the phone, make a call, wait for a call back, and that kind of thing, right? Yeah, although I would I would also point out that now... What a disadvantage. Right. I mean, one advantage that people have today is that you, you know, that because things are instantaneous, you can send everything to everyone on the same day, right. which back then, we, you know, you, you had to literally go to Kinko's to print up the scripts and, like, just yep. getting them printed up and yep. dropped off. But what I would say was that our agent point when he heard the story, you know, one of our signing agents was this guy, Tom Strickler, who was really, you know, very influential for both me and Adam uh, and said, I'm glad that you did this because that's what you're going to have to do for the rest of your career. You know, that the truth is it's all about the hustle. Right. And, and the fact that you are thinking about how to sell this, well, that's what we have to do now is go sell this. And we're going to do the exact same thing to the studio executives that you just did to us. Now, here's the thing. I think anyone would tell you, and I think history has proven this, if we had written a script that was a piece of shit or that was just boring, none of this would have worked. I mean, we waited right. until we had the right script. And, and, you know, the rest of the story is that our agents sold Last Action Hero and our agents and someone else sent the script to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Or that might have actually been through a connection that it got to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but that was not what ended up, you know, when it sold to Sony, you know, to Columbia, 
All the rest of it was luck. That's the luck part. The luck part was we had no idea it was going to get made. I was actually totally prepared for what everyone said to me being true, that it would never get made. I didn't care. I just wanted, I felt like... You just wanted to get signed. Right. I wanted to get signed. And I, I, of course, when it sold, you know, when, when the bidding war happened, I was like, fell to my knees. It was like one of the most exciting... I mean, Adam and I were literally jumping off the walls because... You, know, you guys were 23, 22? How yeah, old were you when, when yeah. this was all happening? Uh, I was 22. He was 23. You know, um, maybe I was 23. It was right in there. It was, it was 91, so I turned 23. Um, and so the bidding war happens, and how do you decide who you're going to sell it to? Like, was it, was it a conversation with your agents? What happens? Yeah, well, actually, something really weird happened, which was the bidding war got up to these really high numbers, you know, um, and then Sony realized that TriStar was bidding against Columbia, which were both Sony companies, and they got really pissed off. And at the last minute, after the bidding had gotten up to $500,000, it ended up being $100,000 against three fifty. So meaning like for a minute, we thought we were rich. And then the next day, we realized <laughs> uh, we get 50000 apiece before paying our agents. But still was like, you know, we were absolutely thrilled. But the day of the bidding where the bidding happened, we realized there's multiple bidders. Our agents were the ones who were responsible for it all. So we, right. you know, they told us we're going to go with the best deal. And at that time, it was just about money. And certainly when the bidding war, it's kind of an unreported part of the story that the bidding war fell apart. And it wasn't until yeah. that, like, then two months later, you know, or whatever, it might have been even shorter, when Arnold Schwarzenegger agreed to star in it, then they ended up boosting, they ended up making up some of the money that they had not paid us, uh, which was a very good lesson in the way Hollywood works, was once our agents had a little bit more leverage, they got some of our fees came back to us. But, uh, but yeah, the rest of it is just, is like, you know, typical Hollywood machinations at a much higher level. And of course, we got fired immediately. Um, as soon as they bought it, they brought in, um, you know, we were kind of parodying Shane Black and they brought Shane Black in to rewrite us and we were fired. So I didn't even right. get into the Writers Guild off Last Action Hero. Um, and I, and, That's crazy. Yeah, and the truth is I got very so, little work off of it either. Um, it was so PCU. what did you do next? That's what I was just going to ask you. Like, what what did you do next? You sell the script. It's a big deal. You get fired, and then and then what? Are you like, okay, I'm right back where I was 12 months ago? Or are you like, no, I've got money in my pocket, and I'm I'm going to go and and do what? What was your next? Move? Well, the next thing. I mean, you know, look, and I don't know why I was this way. I certainly am not this way anymore. But I already had, you know, Adam and I already had a bunch of other ideas lined up, and the next. Yeah. You know, I really wanted to write this comedy we both did about Wesleyan called PCU, which is just all about yep. political. I mean, it sounds so ridiculously quaint now to say that political <laughs> correctness was this idea that most people didn't know about, but that kind of was dominating a place like Wesleyan. And so we had this pitch that we wanted to write next and we sold it right on the heels of writing Last Action Hero, and you know, I certainly wasn't yeah. gonna, I wasn't gonna wait around. I wasn't gonna be like, well, you know, I made X amount of money, so I can live for the next year and a half. So I'm just gonna party all the time. I was like, let's do the next thing, and then P 
PCU we sold while Action Hero was in development, you know, probably after we were fired, but before it had even gotten very far. And then that got made too. Um, so, right. so, and PCU we did not get fired from, and that's how we got in the Writers Guild. And actually that was the script that opened more doors for us. Um, but so while... That's interesting. Yeah, so while Action Hero was like, even before it went into production, we were already working on PCU, and then PCU went into production. The you know, while Action Hero, the year Action Hero was released, we were in production on PCU. So it's really interesting. You said something earlier, Zach, that I thought was really uh, important, especially for a lot of young writers that are coming up. You said that you know you you write or you you wrote at the time what you wanted to see, right? And Last Action Hero, you wrote it because you wanted to see it. I imagine PCU also was a personal story that you had experienced at Wesley, and you wrote it because you were interested in it. How important do you think that is for especially younger writers, baby writers, whatever we're going to call them, who are starting out in this business, who are trying to write their calling card, trying to write the script that's going to get them represented? Presentation, like, like, how important is it to feel like you're writing something that you would want to go watch and that that you're really invested in in that way? I mean, look, I'm not big on telling people what they should or shouldn't write because I feel like the first order of business is what you should write is anything you're willing to finish. You know, like the hardest, <laughs> the the first hardest thing, which luckily was, I, I will admit, that was a problem I got over in my own time before I got to Hollywood because I had learned to write full-length plays and I knew how hard it was to write a full-length play and that like it really required a certain amount of dedication which I am not like a naturally I'm naturally like not that good about doing my work on time and never have been but I I learned early okay you've got to force yourself to get the work done that's the most important thing so first and foremost was Anything that you're willing to write or excited to write, you ought to write because, you, you know, most people never... Because it's hard. Yeah, most people yeah. never get excited to write anything. Even now in my career, it's not like I'm always excited to write the things I have to do. It's often I like the idea, I like the project, but then the writing of it is a bit of a chore, you know? Um, right. So I, I think that's first and foremost. Secondly, the idea of telling people, you know, whenever people are like, you know, write a story that's true to you and personal and all these other things. Well, if that's the best thing you can write, then by all means, that's what you should do. But if the if the story you desperately want to see is, uh, you know, a crazy animated movie about being the, you know, about a little fish called about Darwin. Ninja Turtles. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. I was just, I was going to use an example of a friend of mine who wrote a crazy script called Fish Out of Water, which was about the race to be the first fish on land set 500 million years ago. And it's That's awesome. Yeah, and it sold and it got him a lot of work. It never got made. But, you know, uh, so I think I'm a big believer in, like, look at Last Action Hero. What matters is if people read it and like it, then that's what matters. Now, the only way I have to judge whether people are going to like something that I write particularly if it's got comedic elements to it, which my first scripts all did, is yep. to, if it makes me laugh. And if it doesn't make me laugh, then I have no reason to believe it's going to make anyone else laugh either. Um, and even, you know, the first, the script that was most important in my career, which I wrote right after PCU, which was Suspect Zero, 
which is a thriller, I just wrote a thriller that is something that I would have wanted to see. So I, I don't really know any other way, like the idea that, I guess Adam and I, our second script was us trying to write a thriller that was in the vein of the other thrillers that were getting sold at the time. And to our credit, yeah. we shelved it, you know, when we never did anything with it. Yeah. Because it just wasn't, it was fine, but it wasn't great. So I, I, th- I think if you're a starting writer, like, you know, look at Charlie Kaufman's scripts. You know, yeah. I mean, the blacklist has made a whole business out of people sure. writing crazy yeah. scripts that theoretically would never get made, and then they do. I believe, you know, you should just, like, whatever it is that you want to read and you think other people are going to like reading it, you're not wasting your time to write it, you know, period. Right, and, right. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't be aware of the market, but, like, it, it, I don't think that you can write to the market anyway. I mean, it doesn't really work. So uh, I don't really believe in people who say, you know, work in one of these three genres. I mean, a lot of people said to me early on, you really should focus on trying to write other scripts that are in the same vein as these so that you build up a name. And that was probably good advice, but it was one that I was completely, it was advice I was totally unwilling to follow. Like I just said, well, I and I think it's interesting because that is how people get pigeonholed in this business, right? And you are the writer who does X, right? Or, you know, you're a writer and therefore not a director or, you know, you're the sci-fi guy. And it feels like you've been able to actually have a pretty diverse and rich career and move around between different genres and, and different mediums too, right? Yeah. And, and look, I do get pigeonholed. I mean, I can't tell you how many times after the Marvel movies, people have said, have you ever thought about writing a comedy? You know, and and then, <laughs> you know, I mean, now I've been doing this long enough that people say, like, have you ever thought about writing a comic book movie? You know, just because, you know, they'll just, they know that I've written. Cyclical. Yeah, they know I wrote Free Guy and, and you know, Ready Player One. So. It's uh, interesting. So you're going to get pigeonholed anyway. So I, I never worry about, I wouldn't worry about any of that. What's the what's the best advice you ever got? Best career advice you ever got? The best career advice. I mean, probably <clears throat> probably Tom Strickler saying that attitude towards selling, don't lose it. You're going to need it. Yeah. Uh is probably that's up there. Um you know, I'm trying to I don't I don't know that it was necessarily advice that I got. Uh but I do think the ability, the most important thing is developing the ability to turn disappointment into motivation, which is incredibly obvious. But like I I had a tendency, I would just get angry. You know, when we got fired from last action year, I was just angry. And and I said, you know what, I'm not going to sit around and lick my wounds. I, I need to prove to these people that we shouldn't have been fired, you know, and this is no knock yeah. on Shane Black or anyone else. It's just more that I feel, you know, at the time I felt like we could be doing this. They didn't need to replace us. And you, the ability to take that and turn it into something where you're creating something else, that's pretty much everything. That's what has, that's why I'm still here, you know, today on my 55th birthday still writing screenplays. I mean, that is the one accomplishment I can point to that is definitely not luck. You know, like a lot of people well, are like, I, so. I think that's right. I think you have to, first of all, 
happy birthday. Zach is joining us today, literally on his birthday, uh, because really, how else would you want to spend your birthday than uh, being on the big break? But but I, I think that really is a profound statement, because I do think there are a lot of people who give up and they go get their PhD in psychology or their law degree or whatever else, because the rejection is real. The rejection is profound. And I think it's important to hear people who are at the point in their career where you are, Zach, where you've had so much success and you've gotten to do so many amazing things that have been, been really joyful for you that also, you know, still today, tomorrow, every day, there are going to be those moments that, that suck and that are about rejection. And you have to find a way to be productive with that, with that energy, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the worst experiences I've had and some of the most humiliating have been in the last couple of years. Um, and, yeah. and yeah. you know, I have to remind myself daily, I you know, I'll literally, I'll look around my office and say, just keep in mind, this too shall pass. You know, that's the way you yeah. felt. When I look at that poster over there, I'm like, yep, that was really humiliating. But then I wrote that movie. Um, and and you need to, honestly, if, if you can't accept rejection, if you have a lot of trouble with rejection, this is a terrible, terrible career. Writing, acting, and directing are not good, cre- and music, you know, the arts in general are not good the careers arts, yeah. for people who have a very difficult time with rejection, which, by the way, it's healthy to not like to be, you know, not wanting to be rejected, <laughs> not wanting to be mistreated, right. not wanting to be right. underestimated are completely natural human emotions. And I don't think anyone should think like, oh, it's totally healthy not to want to be in a business that does that to you over and over again. But the nature of the arts, this isn't just that people are mean, which, by the way, let's be honest, Hollywood has a long history. And certainly when I first got out here, there's a lot of people who dined out on being assholes and on being mean yeah. and being gatekeepers. And, 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 by the, and, you know, it's not like there's plenty of people who act like that online anyway. But it is a, it is a less, you know, virulent and less, you know, there's, there is a limit on how, incredibly awful you can be to people anymore without someone calling you out. But for the most part, it is a business that has baked into it rejection and, and you judgment and judgment, constant judgment. And you have to develop a thick skin super fast or come in with one already. And, uh, yeah. you know, people, I, I, I think it's yeah. unique, right? Because when you're, when you're a lawyer and you're working at, uh, at, at Scadden Arps and the partner comes in and throws the brief on your desk and says, uh, this argument is terrible. It won't pass muster. Redo it. Um, you care, you care cause your boss is, you know, not happy with you. You care cause it's more work to do, but there's something different about the creative professions. I think where you put a piece of yourself into the creative expression that is not, just, you know, uh, another brief for the court. It's like something that you have ego in, in a different kind of way, I think. Right. And it makes the creative professions, I think, unique in that, um, it really feels like the work we put out there to people somehow represents us, right. That it represents a piece of our, uh, creative capacity. Right. And that's a little bit different, I think, than a lot of other jobs. And I mean, that goes to, you know, chefs and all kinds of people who are creative. Right. And I think there is this sense of like, you're judging me when you judge my work. Right. Yeah. And, and honestly, like screenwriting is a very particularly harsh one because at least in TV writing, you know, if you get on staff, you're, 
you're somewhat inoculated from, you know, the staff as a whole might get criticized, but you're probably not going to be open to as much of it. Uh, also, you know, there's still places that you can go from here to there without, you know, feeling like it's all really personal. Uh, with screenwriting, right, yeah. you know, you write something and you're pretty much your whole career is tied up in how people receive that piece of writing. So it can be very brutal at times. But um, that's why I do think TV is a better, was always a better route for people if if you can go that way, because at least there's some guardrails, at least there's ways you can be part of a team, you know, which right. as a screenwriter is very hard. But there's no question that you're you're getting into a business that is going to batter you with uh, <laughs> with negativity, and you got to find a way to either ignore it or turn it into something. Um, well, I can't I can't let you leave today without asking you about what's going on with the writers and the producers. Um, you know, uh, you're now in the WGA thanks to PCU, uh, and <laughs> you were were actually part of, I believe, the negotiating committee uh, during the 2017 talks where we came perilously close to a strike. It didn't happen, and, and there was a, a literally a midnight settlement. Um, what do you What do you think about where we are now, and and what do you think? Um, what do you think about the possibility that there could be a strike? How does that impact writers? And, and do you think writers have more leverage maybe in this negotiation, given the state of the industry and all the consolidation and sort of economic concerns? Or, or does that make it make it harder for the writers? I mean, this is such a hard question to answer because, uh, yeah. you know, in my experience, every negotiation, it's in everybody's interest to act like there's going to be a strike no matter what. You know, right. it's in the agent's interest, right. it's in the writer's interest, it's in the studio executive's interest to act like it because it creates more commerce. So it's very difficult. Yeah. Second of all, I think there's, it's pretty obvious that the issues that are facing writers, directors, and actors are pretty enormous right now. I mean, the yeah. way the business is shifting, it is, not a, it is not adjusted to the reality of what's going on. Yeah. That said... I don't know. It's so it's so difficult to judge leverage because, you know, one of the things that's hard for outsiders, which I can comment on as having been an insider, is that, you know, there's a limited range of things that the WGA, for example, can negotiate for, you know. Right. Uh, and, and it's usually, it's almost all pertains to, it does all pertain to the minimum basic agreement. So it's not like they can yeah. negotiate, you know, we're not negotiating for what Shonda Rhimes deal is going to be. We're negotiating what for the lowest staff member that she has is going to be getting. So it's very difficult to know from the outside how much of what's being argued about is A, within the jurisdiction of the WGA, B, what the financial impact of that is to the studios that we're negotiating with, to the companies, yeah. and C, how exposed these companies are. Now, what we all know is it's bad for all the individuals when there's a strike, right? For everyone who's involved in every aspect. There's no one who's happy about it, you know? Yeah. Um, there's, there's no one yeah. who's like, yay, strike, you know? Um, so, and even like... Maybe the unscripted, maybe, maybe the unscripted oh, industry is happy. Yeah, Documentarians right. everywhere, but, but otherwise. <laughs> right. No, you're, you're right. But like certainly... 
you know, I think writers have this imagination that there's someone in business affairs saying, hooray, we'll cancel all these deals. That's not how those people yeah. work. Like, they're not sitting there. Yeah. That, you know, they're not, their take-home pay isn't built on the bottom line, you know, having to do with one writer's deal. So, uh, um, I, you know, it, it's very hard for me to judge. What I will say is there's unquestionably, this is the most chaotic, the last, you know, five to ten years are the, easily the most chaotic yeah. years since I've been in Hollywood and the hardest to judge where things are going. And, you know, it's particularly when you have companies that are build, you know, that have been working towards their market valuation, you know, that where like their stock price and, and yeah. the perceived, you know, when you look at like Wall Street's perception of where the company is going is driving the company yeah. more than Wall Street's perception of how the companies are doing relative to each other in terms of how many big shows or how many big movies they have. It gets very difficult right. for me to judge, uh, you know, what's important and and how much. And also, look, I think we're not dealing with a monolith anymore. You know, these companies right. are not all on the same That's page right. and they're owned they're by very not. different things. They have competing interests. Yeah, they That's have right. very competing yeah. interests. So, I mean, so, I think that's where the chaos comes in, right? Is there's no studio system, right? We we have consolidation, but it's consolidation against these, uh, you know, huge corporations with very competing interests. And 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 I think technology has really accelerated how chaotic things have become, too, right? And the fact that we have uh, so many more distribution channels, but but not necessarily agreements in place to account for the revenue from those channels. Right. right. Well, that's the thing. Like when you have giant you know, companies where there's no way to measure success or failure in a way that relates back to the issues that the WGA negotiates, of course yeah. it gets difficult. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not saying this with any inside knowledge, but if you look at a company like Sony, I can't imagine, I mean, it seems to me like Sony's interests are pretty lined up with the interests of writers directors and actors, right? Because they're not vertically integrated, right? Yeah. Well, they're not vertically, they're vertically integrated in a different way. They're not, what they are not doing is trying to create their own streaming service that's a walled garden that has right. no constants that, you know, that where the performance of their product is unrelated to their stock price because right. they're trying to build the perceived value of a technology they are they're an old fashioned company that's making you know making movies and TV shows and trying to sell them and as long as they're doing that we have deals in place for that and i'm not saying those deals don't need to be adjusted but at least you know if we're talking the, you know a company like sony you know we agree i think the more revenue you make the more revenue we hope to make and the less revenue yep. you make we understand the less revenue we make. That's, but that's different when it comes to a streaming service. Yeah. So, for sure. So yeah, I, for I, sure. you know, I, I wish I had something more insightful to say other than I feel like a lot of people who think they have something insightful to say might be wrong uh, <laughs> because it's very hard to judge what's going on right now. Well, okay, the last couple of minutes, I just want to basically shift gears and talk about the films and TV that you actually love to watch. What are you watching right now on TV? What's, what's, what's in the queue? Okay, what's in the queue? Um, I mean, I guess I could start with 
I mean, why don't I start with what I've watched recently that I really loved? Um, because I'm trying to think what exactly is in my queue right now. There's a lot. Uh, I really love Severance. That was one of my favorite shows. Um, I have not watched that yet. Everybody, everybody says Severance. It's 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 apparently a great show. I, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic, and and I also thought that it it built like I wasn't sure after the first episode, even though I loved all the actors and I think Ben, I think Ben yeah. Stiller has like quietly become one of the or not quietly become one of the best directors in Hollywood. I mean, he's just fantastic. Yeah. And but anyway, that show uh, really did it for me. Um, I'm trying to think like, you know, I was an early adopter on I Think You Should Leave, so on Netflix, which uh, to the point that I think I annoyed the crap out of Tim Robinson at a concert. And, <laughs> and uh, you know. If, very funny guy. Yeah. A very funny guy. But, but my kids are, so like we've already planned out my daughter graduates the weekend, the third season drops, so that's already on my calendar. I'll be watching Succession, you know. Yep, excited uh, for that. Uh, White Lotus, you know, I'm a little bit biased. Of course. Uh, on that one. Aren't we all? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm personally biased because I'm so yeah. I'm happy for Mike that he's, yeah. you know, like it's hit the apotheosis of his, of everything yeah. that he does. Um, there's totally a, earned. I think like everyone else, there's so much good stuff that it's kind of hard for me to keep up. It's kind of a joke in my family that whenever we can't agree... I'll say let's watch Mad Max Fury Road because that was one of my favorite movies of the last. Uh, that was certainly up there for me. Uh, we just watched um, Werner's new documentary. Uh, that was quite good. Oh, yeah. It's called Theater of Thought. Um, and obviously, yeah. you know, Spielberg. Like, you know, any, any second or third Spielberg movie, take your pick. You know, when it comes on TV, I end up watching, you know, I ended up watching Minority Report again just because yeah. you watch one scene and you're like, oh, or, you know, um, yeah. what's it called? Um, War of the Worlds. I mean, I, one, his remake of War of the Worlds is, I think, you know, an unbelievable movie, one of the most underrated movies um, of the last 25 years. So, uh, but I could go on and on. I mean, I, you know, I, uh Certainly nothing I've worked on. Like, I try not to watch my own stuff again, but um, but uh, I don't know. I think that that's probably a pretty good list, right? It's a great list. That's okay. a great list. Um, I got to end on this, Remote Control, uh, early <laughs> MTV game show. You won a car. Uh, uh, now, here's what I don't understand. They introduce you and they say that you're from USC and majoring in biochem. Uh, how did that come about? So I took, I guess this is a good bit of career advice for your listening audience. Uh, when I, I it might be. When I was at Wesleyan, instead of going abroad, I thought, I already knew I wanted to go to Hollywood. And I thought, I had visited L.A. once uh, my freshman year. I visited my friend Matt Greenfield, who's now, um, is one of the people sure. who run Searchlight. Uh and I thought, you know what, I should take a semester in L.A. so I get the lay of the land, and when I move out there, I know what I'm doing. And that was a good move on my part because it's a bewildering city, and I really got over my L.A. fear while I was in college. So while I was enrolled... As in, a New Yorker, you were, you, were, you were reluctant, but you managed to figure it yeah, out. Yeah, I like drove around the city 
when I drove out here first, I drove out of my cousin. I, we literally drove around the city for eight hours trying to figure out where the city was. You know, we're like, where do we, where's, where's the city part? Um, so while I was there, I was taking classes at USC, and it was pretty lonely. I, you know, there weren't that many people I knew out here, and I wasn't used to driving and whatever, but there were auditions for remote control, which I liked, and I watched on MTV, and I, I know a lot of trivia. I will admit that. Yeah. And so when I auditioned, I had to say, even though I wasn't a full-time USC student, you had to be a USC student to get into the audition. That's where they were. Ah, so I said I went okay. to USC, and then when they asked for my major, since I had to say I was at USC, I just figured, well, why not make some shit up? You know, like, why would I tell them the <laughs> truth? So, and, and I... Hence, if, when they say, what's biochem, you say, it's biology and chemistry. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean... <laughs> And I, there's all sorts of things that I did. I, you know, I had a pretty good, I was a bit of a performer and I had a pretty good sense of humor. And I did all sorts of things on that show where there's a lot of things that I answered. I had like decided I was going to use Gregor Mendel as my answer for, you know, for something <laughs> just because, you know, whatever. It just seemed like a random thing to do. But yeah, that was one of the greatest moments of my life was winning the grand, uh, winning the grand prize on uh, remote control. I mean, I won well over $10,000 worth of prizes. I mean, I sold everything. I sold the car. I sold the skis. I sold it all and used that money to make my way through my first year in Hollywood. So if it hadn't been That's for that money, awesome. I would have had to, you know, go get a real full-time job or do something. That's I mean, I don't great. know what I would have done. So that. really, really, you owe your entire career to remote control. That's really what we've learned here today. If you if you had not won remote control, you would be you, you'd be a lawyer right now. Absolutely. That's, that's really what we're and in fact, what, you know, every time I see, you know, Adam Sandler uh, played this character, the stud boy on it. And that's right. The that's round right. that Sandler did was the one where I got all the questions and it really turned the game. I was losing and it turned the game around. Yeah. So whenever I see Adam Sandler, which is not that often, but I run into him occasionally, I always remind him, like, I owe my career to you because if it wasn't for him, <laughs> I wouldn't have won remote control. And turned I wouldn't it all be around. Yeah. So. He, was, he and I were on the same dorm floor at, at Brittany Hall at NYU. So wow. That's, that's my Adam Sandler, uh, no degrees of separation, I guess. I did not know Well, that. I... I, I think we ended on Adam Sandler and remote control. That seems like the right place to end this. Thank you so much, Zach, for, for uh, spending your birthday with us uh, and, and telling us about your big break story. I've known you and, and Mish, your wife, for probably the better part of 30 years now. And your career not only has been incredible to watch, but quite frankly, it's inspired me to keep going at times. And so I hope it, it's inspiring for our listeners as well. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And, and I hope so, too. I mean, you know. I'm, whoever's listening, I'm rooting for you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and that's it for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Please join us for future episodes featuring production companies, CEOs, producers, writers, directors, and more. Our theme music for this episode was composed by Hustle Up member Lewis Robert King. Thank you for listening, and let's hustle up. Hustle Up.